This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Carla Sumala, a researcher and former professor of religion, and Mikey Siegel, a robotics engineer turned consciousness hacker, discuss the intersections of technology and spirituality. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on December 13, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I'm almost a little surprised that so many people are interested in this strange pairing of spirituality and technology, and so we'll have to see what happens tonight. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Carla. And so wonderful to see all of you here. And yeah, this is is an interesting pairing and one that I think we've both, in our own ways, kind of found our way into exploring. Mm but from very different angles, right? Definitely. You're very much coming from the, the um, religious studies and history side. The past. The past. <laughs> and I guess I'm kind of here representing the future <laughs> in a way and the sort of the, and very specifically sort of coming from originally the technology side of things. Oh, we've got um, very different kinds of skill sets and backgrounds in terms of where our training and experiences have brought us, but we've discovered in our conversations together that we have a lot in common. So we're going to go ahead and get started and kind of give you a sense as to why we are up here tonight as opposed to any one of you. Um, And... Since I'm on the more traditional side, I get to start by asking Mikey, um, (laughs) what is it exactly that you do? Now, I had to research this when I first discovered that we were going to meet. I didn't even know half the terms. So, (laughs) you know, what brings you into this conversation? Okay, thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm continuing to figure that out (laughs) myself. Um, It's it's a pretty interesting... um, evolving space because um, it has felt like for the past five or six years that I've really been um, charting a new path. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first started exploring this space and I um, I was looking around, I was trying to figure out how, how can I um, begin to understand and play with and explore this intersection of technology and spirituality. And I, and I went looking for graduate schools three times. And all three times I was rejected um, because no one understood what the hell I was talking about. And to kind of back up a little bit um, to see if I can convey what the hell I'm talking about, um, really it's in a very practical way a, a kind of an unlikely pairing. The relationship between literally this kind of thing, modern technology, and then something that feels profoundly different, something that a lot of us in the room are are probably familiar with, and that is um, what you might call spirituality or transformation or a contemplative path or meditation or the um, contemplative experience. And there's a lot of different 
pointers towards that. There's a lot of different um, descriptions of that and traditions and religions and spiritual structures that look at it and try to understand it. Um, but none of them look like this, right? And so um, my background was more on this side of things in robotics and computer engineering and really focusing in on this relationship between humans and technology. And my graduate thesis was actually looking at, um, was it 350 person human subject study that was trying to understand the relationship between a humanoid robot and, and people that were interacting with the robot. And I was testing out all these different things, the gender of the robot, um, what would happen if the robot shook people's hands, how close interpersonal distance the robot was between um, the, the person that it was interacting with. And I was testing to see how much money people would be willing to donate to the robot if the robot made a pitch for a donation. So it was a very real measure. And what I found is that, first of all, people have, even though they're not necessarily consciously aware of it, a deep relationship with the media and the technology they interact with. And most importantly, what I realized is that people are profoundly influenced by technology. It really changes the way that we feel. It changes the way we experience ourselves. It changes the way that we experience the world around us. And what I've come to realize is that um, that influence is actually quite profound. That um, it's not only profound, but it's increasing. And that technology's capacity to actually change our relationship to ourselves and each other is increasing with every next technological leap. Virtual reality, for example, will be the most powerful tool to influence at its basic level, human attention, engagement, right? An incredible capacity to hold and maintain human attention. And then because of that, an ability to actually influence our experience. And there's a reason why essentially every meditation tradition that's ever existed is in some way focused on modulating or training human attention. Because we, what we attend to, we become. And so I kind of was holding this recognition on one side of the incredible power of technology to influence our reality. And then in parallel on the other side, after graduate school, I started to dive really deeply into a spiritual path. And what I started to realize with the spiritual path was that this process of self-exploration, of self-discovery, of these tools to shift our relationship to ourselves and the world around us were profoundly important. And that um, as I started to dive deeper and deeper into meditation and other practices, um, I realized that this was not only important for my own life and um, realizing that trying to put it in nice terms, um, that all of the internal conflict that I was experiencing that was unseen was actually expressing itself in everything that I did. 
And there was an opportunity to actually have a deeper, more profound impact in the world by actually um, having a deeper and more profound relationship to myself. But I realized that it wasn't just true for myself, that that was actually true on a global scale. And there's a quote that I really like um, from um, the UNESCO Constitution in the United Nations. And it says, since wars begin in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. And what I saw was that this path, this, this you could call it a spiritual path, but it seems for me really around um, increasing our access to our human potential seemed important for the welfare of humankind. And technology was this incredibly powerful force to influence your human experience. And that the aha moment for me was realizing that actually there was no reason why they couldn't be one and the same. There was absolutely no reason why technology could not be designed to support wisdom and connection at a global scale. And the only thing that was missing was our intention to do so. And, and that's been my um, intention um, for the last five or six years. It's interesting that you talk about this connection on a global scale, and it immediately made me think about how I started on this path of thinking of religion or spirituality and technology. And I think it had to do with the fact that in graduate school, I was able to use technology to touch the past in ways that previous scholars have never been able to do. While I was pursuing my PhD at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and where I was learning many, many, many dead languages. That, that's almost the rule. If it was dead, I could learn it. <laughs> and um, during, that process, during that time, the Dead Sea Scrolls were digitized for the very first time. And I could examine a fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls and see it better than if I was in person with a magnifying glass, with a good, um, with a good screen and um, being able to look at it and um, use that and manipulate that image. At first, I saw this connection between religious studies and religion in the ancient world um, as a way of using technology, mm -hmm. right, to get the information that I needed, and I loved that. Um, it helped with homework, certainly, to have the entire corpus of sort of um, ancient Greek literature in Greek with each and every word that you could click on and it would be parsed um, so you'd know what kind of verb it was and a whole page of meanings um, before people would have had to do that manually. And so I saw it really as a tool, which it still is. But along the way, as I got deeper into my studies, I discovered it wasn't just this modern thing that I had the opportunity to take advantage of. Religion and technology have been together, and they have been working hand in hand really since the beginnings of humanity. Um, and they've always 
gone back and forth and worked together. And I really discovered that as I began more and more work on ancient texts, especially throughout history, um, ancient sacred texts as well as others. And what you find is that the texts themselves were influenced by the technology used to create them and, and vice versa. It went back and forth. It was this mutual relationship. So if you look at ancient cuneiform texts from Sumeria, Babylonia, written on clay shards or clay tablets, um, what they were able to write and how they did it influenced what they could do. They wrote on wet clay using a stylus, and they had to move quickly, <laughs> and they had to be precise in order to get what they wanted on those tablets. Over time, those kinds of things speeded up. When I think about then writing on papyrus and all the experimentation that went into producing a material that would take ink and where it wouldn't bleed and that would preserve it, that went to scrolls made out of different kinds of leather, to the, very, to the for early codex, early book, where you could turn pages, actually. That was a revolutionary technology and the kinds of materials need, needed to do that. And religious cultures um, changed as a result um, of these kinds of things. And the religious cultures themselves were the drivers of this kind of technology. Um, and you see that all the way through. It's not just text. As I um, was thinking about this conversation, I woke up this morning with pyramids in mind. And I was in Egypt um, a few summers ago, actually pursuing a living language, Arabic. And in Cairo, I had the opportunity for the first time to see many of the pyramids. And I started thinking about, again this morning, all of the incredible technology that went into building those pyramids for no practical purpose whatsoever. They were tombs. <laughs> filled with treasure. They weren't communal worship centers. They weren't um, places for sacrifice. Um, so there's always been this aspect of whimsy that goes along with um, religious traditions and technology. Sometimes there's a practical use, sometimes not so much. Um, and that continues on today. And religious scholars are particularly interested, and where this has kind of caught me up again, is thinking about how technologies today are changing the way people are religious or spiritual. I looked at my phone um, on the way here and there, maybe you have it on yours, the Insight <laughs> Meditation Timer. Um, and actually, and it tells you, you are now meditating with 4,372 people around the world. And then you find out that someone in India just finished such and such meditation. And I started thinking, how is this reshaping the boundaries of our spiritual communities, both in time and in place? In previous times, they were more bounded. But if I'm meditating with Monica in Toronto, and I will never meet her, does that form some kind of bond between us to be on this? I don't know. 
that's just one aspect. There are others as well, and I'm thinking about all of the materials that can be found on the internet that are religious, many of them really, really problematic. So this can be a good thing, but it can also be um, particularly problematic when you look at the kinds of things um, that um, is happening within spiritual religious traditions um, and the kinds of things that are being promoted in on the web. So all of those sorts of things are con questions that I continue to think about, and it kind of brings me into the same room with Mikey. So we are actually, I was able to come from the past to meet him right now in the present. <laughs> and as we think about these things. Yeah, I, and I'm, I actually just feel like I have so many questions I want to <laughs> ask you because I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really fascinated by the history of this, which is something that I really, I've been so like looking forward, looking forward, or maybe like my version of history is like the 1960s and like the beginnings of biofeedback or something like that. You know, that's like as far back as that I go. That is so funny. In grad school, anything after the 8th century was modern. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Modern's like 2015 <laughs> for me. So um, what I'm really interested in is, is like, I'm really first interested in this relationship between um, what we could broadly call technology and religious experience. And my view of it, and I'm kind of use this as an opportunity to like <laughs> have you like tell me if my theories of things are just totally crazy. But um, my my sense of things is that from the birth or, or from the the origin of of human's connection to divine experience, whatever we want to call that, but sort of that, mm. that, that aspect of self-discovery in which we, we sort of realized there was some deep, something beyond the ordinary, something beyond the normal, some way of connecting to something deeper that we have been creating tools of various sorts to help facilitate and, and, and reconnect us with that experience. And, and I see like, like from temples to churches to, to um, you know, even ceremonial rituals around the fire, like, like does that resonate with you that the technology has been a part of? Well, in a, um, a course I first took and then I was able to use some of what I learned in my teaching, um, looking at the history of cathedrals, is an, is an exercise in a deep relationship between spirituality, religion, and technology. If you look at the very early cathedrals, they just didn't have the resonance in terms of sound. They didn't have the height and space that gave you that sense of awe. They didn't have windows because they were too hard to create at those heights. But through the forces of church men in general, driving these kinds of th these things. How can we make it higher? How can we make it more transcendent? How can we make the sound big? Mm. Um, you can kind of see those things working. And if you've been into a cathedral, particularly one in Europe, an, an older one, I was in Notre Dame recently, this past summer, and I walked in again, and there's just this sense of awe. It doesn't even really matter what kind of tradition or affiliation you have. It's just like there's this sense of, wow, wow, 
And um, that technology can create that kind of experience is really interesting. And I'm thinking about today, is there an equivalent for me of that same kind of awe and sound and resonance that came from that? I'm, I'm, I've been puzzling on that lately. So, yeah, this is so interesting. So um, when, I hear, when I hear you describing this kind of historical progression, when my kind of techie engineer brain hears is like version 1.0, version <laughs> 2.0, version 3.0 of like the cutting edge of awe. Mm-hmm. Right? That's great. You I know, that. like what, what, because that was, those were incredible feats mm-hmm. of engineering. I mean, that was really like the equivalent of like launching a rocket to the moon. I mean, mm-hmm. it was that level of engineering. And the purpose of it was really to facilitate a particular type of religious experience, right? And so, in a sense, it's like, um, you know, a kind of like use this term consciousness hacking, right? These, these were like increasingly advanced consciousness hacks and um and it's it's fascinating to me that that's kind of been a part of of this um this sort of parallel evolution right where mm-hmm. technology evolves religion religion evolves technology and back and forth and i think your question of well what is the equivalent now mm-hmm. is um is really interesting and i would say if i if i had to summarize what my biggest interest right now is is um what what is the cutting edge of awe uh, now and and that's our next book yes <laughs> no we're gonna digital production <laughs> <laughs> that's true um, and uh, virtual reality experience um, and so and and to put it in a different way I'm interested in this idea of spiritual innovation right um, if we've seen in the past this idea that we've had this co evolutionary process between technology and the the religious or spiritual experience, and the two have sort of shifted and supported and danced with each other, what does that look like moving forward? Like, like what is the future of religion in a sense? And is it going to be dramatically changing as we move into these uncharted territories of like massively connected virtual reality, social experiences and this, and this sort of thing? You know, it's interesting. I've seen um, headlines in articles. Is religion going to change? The funny thing is religion, and maybe that's why we use the term spirituality. There really aren't hard and fast definitions for either. It's always been changing. It has never stopped changing. It is continually in process. I think a lot of us like to imagine it as being set in stone, the thing that doesn't change. But that has never really been the case. And so, of course, religion is going to change. It is always changing. And I think the question for us is, we were talking a little bit about this, Every generation thinks that they're different. And I think we're asking, is it really different this time? Are we on a new edge? Is this different than what any of our forebears um, experienced in terms of change or in potential? Mm. Like, not just change, but where it might go. And I think, you know, there's always that sense. I, you know, I bet the Greeks thought the same thing. Um, but... This idea of technology, especially as we're looking at sophisticated levels like artificial intelligence, 
I think we just don't understand them well enough to even know. Mm. So I'll give you, I'll kind of throw something out there, a kind of an intentionally, um, a kind of a a provocative um, sort of question. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll kind of throw these these questions out with with my students. So um, there's a device called Think. And um, it's um, a device that actually um, electrically stimulates the brain in very specific patterns. You actually kind of stick it on to your head and it has a little patch, a little electrode that connects on the back of your neck. And it has an a interface on an app. You kind of open up the app. And this is a trend with a, a number of different technologies. And um, what I would call it is, is, I would call it the dial up your preferred experience. And on the app, it has um, sleep, relax, joy, um, work, energize. You know, it's got seven or eight different. Can you combine them? Um, I don't think you can, you can combine them, but but maybe you know that could right. be the next ver- right. that could be version two point And so it's literally it's it's this early stages of this possibility to, in a sense, literally um, dial up a particular experience. And I and I know a number of people that are actually working on. Um, really advanced technologies that would allow, in a relatively short amount of time, people to experience what might have taken 10,000 hours of meditation to achieve advanced jhanas, um, deep states of samadhi. Um, and so my, my question is, like, how will that change the spiritual and religious structures if all of a sudden um, technology has, in a sense, democratized access to the direct experience of the divine. And if, you know, not the only purpose, but it seems like one purpose is particularly for the Eastern traditions, but, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. for, you know, the mystical traditions in the the West, um, that they have been kind of these these safeguards of or pointers towards um, these experiences of the divine. And so how, like, how does it change? I guess I would be the devil's advocate and that people would be, would might think, well, then is it really the same kind of experience? Is there a qualitative difference that when you stimulate somebody's brain or when you've worked or, meditated 10,000 hours or done this particular spiritual practice, is there, is there something that is different between those two things? Yes. Or are they ultimately the same thing? Is it yeah. like the goal or is it the process? I guess I would ask you. Yeah. This is so, this <laughs> is like one of the, I think one of the core questions at the heart of this and one of the things that keeps coming up and come, keeps coming up and I actually think that um, this is something that's important for all of us to be thinking about because this isn't a sci-fi reality anymore. This is actually something that's already being built and designed. And so, you know, one of the one of the things that comes up a lot is it's interesting. Actually, literally, this metaphor comes up a lot where people say, "Okay, you know, you're trying to get to the top of the mountain, right?" It's not just to get to the top. It's like there's an importance to this journey, to this whole process to get there. And 
and I think about this a lot. And the thing that I have trouble finding a clear, decisive answer around is who's to say what that journey should be? Who's to say how long that journey should take? Who's to say what the actual structure, the content of that journey is, right? Um, for, you know, who's to say how long awakening takes, right? And do we run the risk of actually limiting ourselves from the potential of actually having um, widespread collective shifts in human consciousness that are potentially really needed by holding on to um, a kind of outdated notions of how much we're supposed to suffer before we can finally be free. I guess it's sort of, you know, sort of the American way. you got to put your hours in, right? Yeah. And you brag about your 80-hour work week and, you know, so that we can all feel useful. But then we ask ourselves, what is the 80 hours accomplishing? Yeah. And so we can ask the same thing then about a religious experience. Maybe it's, maybe it's not so modern. I think we've always had what you're talking about. They're called dreams, mm. right? We think they go on and on and on. And what we've learned is that a dream that we think went on forever could have been moments. But we've been folded into it and we're either really bummed out when we wake up or relieved. <laughs> oh, thank God, that's not real, you know. Um, or is it? Um, and I think we've always had that relationship with this mm. alternate reality. But to be able to provoke it is, is one of those things technologically. But people have tried to manipulate dreams. There have been potions that you can take, and there have been experiences to bring them on. There's a whole emerging technology space around lucid dreaming, right, where actually um, you can... Um, wear a mask that will detect when you're in um, the REM stage of sleep and actually blink lights in a very specific way that will support your process of actually waking up in the dream experience and becoming conscious in that dream experience. And this is actually um, one of those interesting transitions that's beginning to happen more and more in academia where something that was considered to be in the in the sort of the space of spirituality or mysticism is, is now becoming a hard science. You know, Stephen LaBerge was a, a researcher who actually brought lucid dreaming into mainstream academia through the use of this technology by actually being able to, um, actually being able to induce lucid dreaming in a controlled research environment. And the interesting thing is, what's so that was already decades mm -hmm. ago. What's happening now is you have um, researchers using extremely advanced neuroimaging technologies. So these are things like fMRI or EEG technologies that actually monitor what's happening inside the brain. Mm -hmm. And they're able to do it with incredible accuracy. And this has been used for decades and decades now to study what happens inside the brain. And so we've had this whole, um, you know, this kind of this amazing, like, renaissance in meditation research where for the last um, 15 or 20 years, there have been hundreds or thousands of research papers published now 
around um, meditation, bringing these monks in, scanning their brains, seeing what that looks like. But the interesting thing is, like lucid dreaming, um, there's a similar thing happening in academia where this technology is being used not just to scan the brains of these meditators and to understand what those brains look like, these technologies are actually being used to induce the meditative experience. So you're actually able to put someone into a half a million dollar machine, scan the part of their brain that's associated with deep states of meditation, and then create a feedback loop inside this machine where they can actually be, use the machine as a form of sort of self-awareness to guide them, this is like a novice mm -hmm. meditator, to guide them into a state of meditation that might have taken 10,000 hours to get to. And that's actually happening at Yale and other universities. So it's not quite democratized, considering not, we, we're not going to be able to get these machines in our living rooms. Like, <laughs> So this is happening, though, in this flavor, right. in everything from apps to wearables to unique. You know, when you're saying that, I kept thinking... It's really full circle in terms of this blending of science and technology and spirit, you know, these, these fields sort of blending and becoming um, harder to differentiate. And I think that's um, much more like and more accurate in terms of how these kinds of things worked historically. The whole idea of religion as a separate thing, mm -hmm. identifiable, that's like a modern deal. Yeah. It was, it's, a, it's a construct. Um, beginning with, um, primarily in Germany, with philosophers, and, think, and it was in the encounter with colonial peoples and thinking, wow, they do stuff that's a lot different than what we do. What is it mm -hmm. that we do and what is it that they do and how can we compare it? Mm -hmm. And so they came up with the term religion. Um, it has ancient roots, but really the meaning is pretty new. And they made it a thing unto itself, separate from everything, um, other fields. And in the United States, we've kind of made an art out of that, where we have you know, church and state, those kinds of things, where we assume that they can be separated. But historically, that's never been the case. In the, the university and the whole idea of that was in our terminology today, a religious undertaking. All of those things took place um, in one body. So you had people who were um, developing fabulous stuff, but they were also, you know, parts of religious traditions, what we might call Taoism or Confucianism today, or, you know, but they didn't call themselves that. <laughs> that's so fascinating because that's the history of technology as well. <laughs> which is that it was never considered to be a separate thing. The, the term technology was actually coined, you know, in Ancient the last Greeks? couple hundred, yeah. well, the way it, we meaning use in it. modern, in terms yeah. of modern technology, not that long ago, you know, the last couple hundred years, I think. And so um, this is, it also was not for a long time considered to be sort of this separate thing. And then we kind of culturally um, differentiated it and compartmentalized it. And in a sense, we might have gained things in that sense, you know, separating um, spirituality from science allowed us to kind of have this 
maybe illusion of objectivity, um, which helped us in a lot of ways. But um, we've also maybe lost something from that. Mm -hmm. We've maybe lost something from sort of artificially creating these divisions. Silos. These silos in terms of what I would call broadly human expression. And the thing I keep coming back to is, um, what if all forms of human expression were grounded in wisdom, were grounded in compassion, were grounded in the desire for the welfare of humanity, and were designed to support humanity's flourishing? How would technology change how would the educational systems change? How would our economic systems change? Those are really good questions. <laughs> you know, it's a little overwhelming to think about um, this. When you're speaking, I went back to the earlier comment that you made, going to the three attempts at graduate school, where can I do this sort of spirituality and technology and the siloed effect? No, 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 no. You can't do both of those. I'm right. sorry. The, right. They have nothing to do with each other. Um But even now, in a relatively short time, I think things are beginning to change to say, yeah, we we better, you know, academia is always hard to change quickly. And it's, you know, like the Titanic, hopefully it won't sink. But, you know, you try to turn it and it's, it's really challenging. But I think there are people out there recognizing that some of the models that we have to teach and to learn and to think about things aren't always conducive to the things themselves, you know, when we're taking a look at these. Um, I, I, w- I would make the, the argument that um, perhaps one of the most important things that's needed at this time is the reconciliation of those, of those divisions and um, that it, there's almost an imperative mm-hmm. That if we aren't able to integrate the deepest ideals of religious and spiritual traditions into the design of technology, then in a way we're it's a we're, failed project. We're kind of screwed <laughs> as as a humanity because we are literally going to be immersed in a ubiquitous technological environment that does not have wisdom and these deepest spiritual ideals at its foundation. And if it's not there, then what is there? I think the key word here that you've used a lot, and I think it it means a lot to me, this whole idea of human experience. Mm. um, It's something that in the sciences, you're not supposed to actually have it. You're supposed to observe it Mm. (laughs) and analyze it. But... When the things that we're talking about now, we can't be at arm's distance mm. from that idea of human experience, partly because I think it frightens us. You know, it's like you can watch it, but don't participate kind mm. of idea. And I think, you know, blending these kinds of worlds means that we have, it gets messy. It gets really messy. <laughs> it gets messy um, partly because we've been in denial of it for so long. <laughs> And, and it's confusing to realize that um, we've never been separate from experience. And we've never been, this science, we've never been able to actually have real objectivity. And that 
that is a thing that's starting to be realized in, in certain areas of science. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a, um, it's a hard a pill to swallow. Yeah. So I guess when we're taking a look at this combination in, in using experience, which we've more typically um, associated with things like spirituality and um, um, the more, this more scientific approach in technology, I want to kind of go back to one of our fundamental questions in terms of how can this, and what you've already been talking about, how can this technology help us be more who we are, Mm. more human, not as opposed, and I think we get the scary pictures sometimes, especially in popular press, we're going to become robots, or there's, we're not going to be able to tell each other apart, but how is this more blended picture, how will we actually be more of this, you know, physical sense of who we are? Yeah, such an important question, Um, and I want to, I want to first like start by saying that um, the the danger of sort of what you could call a dehumanizing, which mm-hmm. which it'd be interesting to pick apart what that really right. means, you know, but but to kind of use it as a kind of a loose term, mm-hmm. um, is not only real but it's already happening, right? This mm-hmm. is a very real implication of technology. I mean, atomic bomb is technology, so let's not kid ourselves, technology has the capacity to destroy us, right? And when you just look at the way that modern technology is designed, where if you look at the way that these things are designed, um, they're already beginning to follow the exact same course that the food industry has followed, where we've essentially created an incredible profit motive around the consumption of sugar, And if you look at the 10 leading causes of death in the United States, most of them are food-related. The food industry, in a sense, is literally actually causing the death and disease of a large portion of humanity. And the same distorted um, um, uh, biases and the same distorted priorities are taking place when you open up your phone and you look at a set of apps that are all essentially designed to compete now not with your biological urge for sugar, but now with your addictive compulsion towards entertainment and engagement. It's actually addicting you not at the physical level now, but at the um, mental level, at the attentional level, right? And... And so this is um, this dehumanizing is is real, and there's real questions around um, how do you possibly compete with hundreds of millions of dollars being put into designing apps that are so addictive that people will. Um, give up large parts of their life and their well-being just to continue to play them. Um, that's the that's the the gloomy <laughs> that's the gloomy the gloomy side of it. So, which even means that spiritual traditions have something to say in terms of helping us th- prioritize, because the technology itself doesn't make those priorities, or they're pushed on us. Yeah. For profit and power motives, 
So we need some sort of mechanism also internal that helps us see clearly and prioritize um, importance of things. Um, Like I come to the exact same conclusion. And for me, it's, it's, it's like exactly what you're saying. Um, There needs to somehow be like um, a different place from which we are designing these tools, a different priority system in place, um, a way of actually grounding the creation of these technologies in the wisdom and insight that has been pointed at for thousands of years. So it's like this resistance, um, some built-in resistance checks, balance, some, some challenge to it. In some ways, it feels as if there aren't any in our daily lives. Um, I've taught college students for last 15, 16 years. I've been a professor. And during that time is really when the whole smartphone idea came, took place. My first year of teaching, it didn't exist. Students weren't even carrying the stuff around. But now this is the position, (laughs) (laughs) and I have to, cell phones away, and then they just put them underneath, you know. Um, And you have to have these different set of directions, and, uh, you know, you're worried about detention spans. So you have this, like, resistance movement. Um, Where do you get these values from? These are, you know, that you're talking ancient traditions or as they develop. I think that's a really critical piece. I have a question for you. Okay. History question. Yeah. So I'm kind, I'm kind of realizing now, this is probably a thing that has repeated again and again at, you know, at different mm-hmm. scales, but maybe repeated again and again, this, this use of um, technology um, both to move us towards um, religion, to move us towards the divine, to move us towards spirituality in different ways, mm-hmm. And then um, the maybe the distortion of that, um, like technology to move us away from that in different directions, or or technology used to control, or technology used to manipulate people in certain ways. Um, And I imagine even in in within religious structures, even Mm -hmm. right, you might have seen, and I wonder your view on this, the use of these technologies for both purposes for more of the political side mm-hmm. of religion and then the, the sort of the spiritual side of religion. And like, how, like, how has that, like, have you seen that play out? Well, I'm just, first of all, thinking about that question in terms of what some of the ancient debates about technology were. And I'm thinking, um, there are two examples that come to mind. Like I said, this whole idea of religion, not being a separate thing and, um, Plato having a real concern for things being written. <laughs> and a lot of the Greek philosophers, they're really anxious about mm. that. Like, what's going to happen if it's all written? Um, in the Israelite tradition, you have a similar um, piece in, of, in, it's in Proverbs, of the making of books, there is no end. <laughs> and there's this sense, like it's this perpetual thing that draws us away. Mm. So this technology of recording and writing and using to communicate that there's something that it can be used in a problematic way. And not only that, that it can change 
how we think. Mm. And so you kind of go back to that. But even in the modern um, period, you see different religious traditions using technology differently. And what you'll find is often, and this is kind of um, counterintuitive, the most conservative or some of the among the most conservative religious traditions that use technology the most broadly and widely they're very conservative many liberal or mainline or progressive religious traditions aren't particularly interested or they're you know trailing far behind but the um, most significant use and the most up to date use are very very conservative Groups, yeah, it's you can see it anywhere that you go in terms of um, whether it's performance-based worship. Um, how do you create the perfect acoustics and um, music? How do you do all these things to digitizing um, uh, messages um, as a way of control? Sometimes, um, if you look at the stuff on the web, much of it will be more conservative and than it is a progressive or liberal. Um, and so you see that in terms of people saying, okay, conservative values, whatever that means, right? And very, very um, high and innovative use of technology. It's an interesting blend. That is that is not what I would have uh, yeah. expected. So the, the big <laughs> innovators on technology are conservative um, religions and the porn industry. That's like the two. Uh, totally. And well, they're often. No, I <laughs> no, I was thinking about in terms of evangelical Christianity, you see that happening a lot. If you look at um, Judaism, um, Chabad, if you are looking up, you know, something in Judaism, which is um most, you know, specifically my field, you'll often find those sites before any others. Although very few, if you take a look at Americans or Israelis, um, are part of that Jewish movement, right? So most American Jews, for example, would consider themselves progressive or liberal, at least the majority. But if you look at the websites, you don't always find that matchup. And the same thing for Christianity in the United States. You'd think all Christians... We're wing nuts. There, you know, it, it, many are, but not all of them. And the ones who um, have particular positions are are very astute at using technology. And and why? I think it is the drive to proselytize. Mm. It is the drive for adherence. So the more progressive beco you become, then the more okay you are with each other, and you don't need to convert each other. Um. Which is, you know, maybe a good thing or a bad thing. We're not, we don't have to go there. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with that drive towards um, gaining adherence. And there's a real motivation in, and incentive, partly because sort of the ultimate questions are at stake. Mm -hmm. So that is um, really <laughs> interesting. And, um, and, it, and it makes sense that if there was that deep motivation to... Um, create adherence mm -hmm. or to proselytize or to shift perspective, that technology would be used more frequently because it has that, it has that ability, it has that potential. It's the uh, same thing like you were talking about with the drive for profits. Yeah. 
profits and proselytization, they go, you know, same kind of thing. It's like what single-minded, right. you know, approach to it gets results. So my, my sense of things is that um, technology is an amplifier, mm-hmm. right? It can be used um, in amplification in the sense of amplifying um, a message, in amplifying an intention, in amplifying um, a particular um, uh, ex- type of experience. It's, it's like a, it's an intensifier, an amplifier. And um, in, in a lot of cases that we're talking about and kind of the more gloomy doomsday type cases, mm-hmm. um, we can see this potential for technology to be amplifying um, conservative um, religious values in a kind mm-hmm. of a proselytizing um, con- conversion sense or um, amplifying the intentions of a profit-motivated um, technology app industry, for example. Um, and so, you know, my the thing I'm wondering about, um, which I, I, I think we should all be wondering about, is um, how do we ensure, and, and you know, I'm not... This is obviously, this is a hard question for you because, you know, it's, not, it's a kind of a tech-oriented question. But, like, um, for thousands and thousands of years, there's been kind of this um, dance mm-hmm. in terms of spiritual and religious values, right, being integrated into the ideals of society, mm-hmm. right? And it seems like we're kind of at this important juncture where— um, Either, and I don't want to make an either-or scenario, I don't, I don't like that, but there's this potential for these kind of profit-motivated uh, profit, uh, or fear-driven um, values to be amplified by technology. Mm-hmm. And there's also the potential for deep spiritual wisdom and religious ideals to be amplified by Technology, or just the best of who we are. The best of, regardless of what they are, but the best of what humanity can do. Yes, the best of what humanity can do, and I'm so glad you said that because for me, we've we've used spirituality and religion as a container to explore kind of the best of humanity, Mm. but really, or the worst, or the worst. (laughs) Yes, Um, at best, the best, Mm -hmm. Um, but. For me, this is what we're talking about is a, is a human potential, right? You know, whether it's um, Christian traditions or Buddhist traditions or Hindu traditions, they have pointed to um, not a, a religious experience for me, but they've pointed to a human experience mm-hmm. that is fundamentally accessible as humans, regardless of the context, regardless of the particular religious or spiritual experience mm-hmm. in a way, in its own flavor. And so um, I see this incredible potential mm-hmm. for, and I'm going to kind of say this, maybe, mm-hmm. and this will be provocative, we'll see, um, for technology to be the secular religion mm-hmm. of the future that is actually um, the new sort of democratized structure that on a global scale can point people towards that profound human experience. I think what struck me when we first met is how optimistic you are. 
Um, and you're one of the few people I've actually met that was really hopeful um, and had such a positive outlook for the future in terms of bringing together these things that we call technology or spirituality or religion. And it in turn gave me some hope. <laughs> Where, what gives you that hope that it doesn't have to end in disaster? <laughs> um, I, I would say that I have a responsibility to be optimistic um, because I recognize the incredible power that our um, beliefs and perspectives have mm -hmm. on the world around us. And so I'm, I'm really choosing the world that I want to live in. And I think that we all need to choose the world that we want to live in. And, and start I think, living there, right? <laughs> and start living it. And, and I think that actually, um, especially now it feels like that the reality around us is, is um, increasingly malleable. Right? And this is one of the things that technology allows for, is for really rapid changes in the cultural, political, economic landscapes of the world. Right? I mean, um, like, look at the last election, right? I mean, really surprising things are quite possible, aided in many ways by, by technology, by the ability to transfer information and communicate and develop virtual communities in really short timescales. So what would have taken 100 years in the past, we can shift and do things more quickly. And it's possible, using some of the words that you used earlier, those words of like attention and intention, yeah. if those are inserted into this process. Yes. Yeah. And so in that sense, where we can almost take a sense of personal, like things are so malleable that we can even take a personal responsibility and realize our individual power to actually pretty dramatically change the communities around us. Like through a Facebook post, through a tweet, through holding an event. I mean, it's actually really uniquely possible now. And so there's this question of like, um, what's the world that we want to live in? And um, I, I, I imagine... And this is kind of going now, like, like this question, like what's the future of, mm -hmm. of religion? And I use that term kind of, kind of provocatively in a mm -hmm. sense, but I imagine a world in which um, our, all of our environment is imbued with wisdom, mm -hmm. where we um, see this um, emerging ubiquity of what we might call artificial intelligence, right? Which will soon be everywhere, not just sort of in our phones in some basic like kind of dumb Siri sort of, <laughs> no, I said, I wanna go to CIIS, not I wanna, you know. Um, but that actually um, really advanced, really advanced artificial intelligence will be in the walls, in our pockets, strapped to our wrists, and really, whether we are excited about it or not, probably embedded in our bodies mm -hmm. in a way where it actually really is ubiquitous. And for me, that intelligence, which we could call artificial intelligence, but for me, it's just an expression of the same intelligence that's beating our hearts and blooming the flowers around us, mm -hmm. right? 
I believe that that intelligence can actually be an expression of wisdom. And if it is, then more and more and more so, everything around us in our entire environment can be um, um, grounded in and expressing the compulsion towards our, the evolution of human consciousness. Almost like a ubiquitous universal religion where the entire world is that. You know, I was thinking as you're talking, some of the kinds of things that you, the language that you use actually has really ancient um, texture, um, partly this sort of living into this world that you want to live in. Mm. And I'm thinking particularly, and there are many traditions that do this, but Judaism and Christianity in particular in Judaism, the Sabbath or Shabbat is practiced every week. It is an attempt, as Abraham Joshua Heschel said, to build cathedrals in time. Mm. And that you are living into that future. He said, how will you know how to live there unless you practice it? Mm. And see it and taste it. Um, within the Christian tradition, you have a similar sense in some of the passages in which Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Often people think about that as heaven, as this distant place, but it looks as if, as scholars think about how Jesus used it in context, that it wasn't some distant place. He talked about it being among you and in you. It is the now and the future. Mm. And it bridges those sorts of things. So maybe that optimism is grounded in that kind of thinking where we're living into that. And, you know, and I guess if we were to choose a future, I guess I would choose hope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank for, you, Carla. Thank you. <laughs> been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcasts.